Some fear it. Others hoard it. Some with power speak softly. Others carry a big stick. Power is charisma, or coercion, or violence. Power is name recognition, or money, or computer code. Regardless of your definition or perceptions of it, power plays a critical role in how we work. You're listening to Strange New Work, a special series from What Works that uses speculative fiction to explore radical work futures. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. In this final installment of Strange New Work, we're going to explore power, what we can do with it, how we can grow it, and critically, how we can share it. But first, what is power? Power is the capacity to get things done. That's Tanya Luna. She's an entrepreneur, psychology researcher, and author of the new book, Lead Together, which explores how organizations can build better teams through power sharing. That's as simple as it is. You need power to do anything, whether that's, you know, get sales for your business, turn on a light switch. Power is the capacity to get things done. How we go about getting things done is as much a matter of culture as it is institutions or politics. In many cultures, power sharing happens at all levels of community engagement. However, you probably don't live in one of those cultures. Western supremacist and imperialist culture vests power in Machiavellian strategies, even as it embraces the guise of democracy. According to power researcher Docker Keltner, there's a, quote, widespread tendency to think of power as involving extraordinary acts of coercive force. Power just isn't something that common people tend to have. Keltner writes, quote, Power was what the great dictators wielded. Power was embodied in generals making decisive moves on battlefields, businessmen initiating hostile takeovers, co-workers sacrificing colleagues to advance their own careers, and bullies on the middle school playground tormenting smaller kids. And since we associate power with these scenarios of control, belittling, and even violence, many of us distrust or avoid anything that resembles power. Ursula K. Le Guin's The Lathe of Heaven is a novel about extraordinary power, even if it's exercised in a manner that would confuse the hell out of Machiavelli. The protagonist, George Orr, has what he calls effective dreams, as in, they create an effect. His dreams have the ability to change the fabric of reality. Give it a try. Suppose I dream that there's no Dr. Haber. Now, tomorrow when I wake up, not only are you gone, but you never existed. 
pretty revealing. At the opening of the story, George is terrified of falling asleep because he doesn't want to wake up to find out he's dreamed up some major catastrophe. He takes drugs to suppress his dreams, and his dependency on that medication gets him flagged by government surveillance. He's required to visit a psychologist, a dream specialist, for therapy. I'd like you to tell me more about these dreams that change reality. Think back to the first one. How old were you? 17. I was 17. Yeah. I was still living at home. This psychologist, Dr. Haber, is a bit unorthodox. He's been experimenting with a machine that he is designed to induce a dream state while leaving the mind open to suggestion. Now, maybe you see where this is going. Dr. Haber coerces George to agree to a program of therapy to cure him of the effect of dreams. He tells George that through supervised dreaming, George will learn to no longer dream effectively. During each session, Dr. Haber hooks George up to the machine and hypnotizes him to suggest a particular kind of dream. George dreams according to plan, and when he wakes up, he feels better. But George quickly figures out that Dr. Haber isn't actually curing him. Haber is using George's effective dreams to change reality. George, what are you doing? I want the truth. Well, come up to my office, we'll discuss it. We'll discuss it right here. All right, if you insist. I suppose I should have told you earlier, George. I just wanted time to sort things out. Yes. I know about your dreams. I've known for quite some time. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Haber, for being honest. You have a great gift, George. Together we can learn to use it. You can't use my dreams to change things. Haven't you learned that yet? Isn't that the purpose of man on Earth? To act, to change things, to run things, to build a better world. No. What then? The bulk of the novel is purposefully disorienting, shifting from one version of reality to the next. Le Guin deftly keeps the reader wondering, did I miss something? But no, it's just the results of the last dream. Dr. Haber, a middle-of-the-road psychologist with no great accolades to his name, spotted a tool for attaining power when it entered his office. Le Guin writes, quote, The quality of the will to power is precisely growth. Achievement is its cancellation. To be, the will to power must increase with each fulfillment, making the fulfillment only a step to a further one. The vaster the power gained, the vaster the appetite for more. As there was no visible limit to the power Haber wielded through Orr's dreams, so there was no end to his determination to improve the world. Haber believes he changes things for the better, improving everyone's lives. And it's this seeming benevolence that eventually convinces George to come back. He doesn't like being used, but he wants to help make the world a better place. But Haber wields his power without any concern for the knock-on effects of the changes he suggests to George. And as the residue from each change builds up, 
the world they inhabit looks more and more strange. I want to stop. George, I know that I can learn to harness your power, but you must give me time. It's no use. We haven't got the right. We have a duty. Why do you resist? Why do you fear your own power? Because it doesn't work. You change one thing and everything changes. So if power is the capacity to get things done, who really has the power in Le Guin's story? Is it Dr. Haber, who seems to control George through manipulation and dream suggestion? Or is it George, who has the ability to effectively dream? Dr. Haber exercises his institutional power over George, functionally taking on George's capacity to dream effectively as his own power. And it's this kind of power that we often think of when we think about the proverbial powers that be. But power over is just one way of expressing and organizing power. Mary Parker Follette, working in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, is largely forgotten today. But she's been called the mother of management theory, and Peter Drucker cited her as one of the most influential thinkers on his own theories about management. Follett is the first to make the distinction between power over paradigms and power with paradigms. Power over is this paradigm where we use power as a means of controlling others. Tanya Luna again. So it's like you can picture that like typical, you know, top-down hierarchical kind of triangle where you've got one person or a small group of people who are using their influence, their skills, their authority to get people to do what they want. That could work, uh, but all that does is it gets a thing done. It doesn't grow people's ability to get more and more and more and more things done. And if you do it poorly, then you're actually draining other people of their power. You're reducing their ability and willingness to grow, to engage, to contribute, things like that. The power over paradigm is familiar to anyone who's worked for a controlling or micromanaging boss. Your boss tells you what to work on and how they want it done. They rule over meetings while others listen quietly, knowing their feedback won't matter. They might even take the credit for the team's successes or pass off your ideas as their own. Power over is the kind of power that authoritarian leaders of all kinds exercise. It's that all-too-familiar Machiavellian power that many of us have learned to fear. But the appeal of the hierarchical power over model is that it seems efficient. Sure, collaboration is nice, but it's slow, right? Tanya says that operating in a power over paradigm is often, in fact, inefficient. Sounds efficient. Tends not to be, though, because those people that are being really quiet, they might be confused, they might be disagreeing, they might be totally demotivated. And so it might look like the decision is made very efficiently, but then the execution could be slow or just not happen. All right. So how else can we think about power? Power with, way more exciting, it's a way to use whatever power you have to grow the power of the people around you. And so, as I was saying before, you know, maybe it's, I have some knowledge, let me share that knowledge. 
or I have some decision-making authority, how do I actually spread around that decision-making power so more people have authority? Um, or I have context, how do I share that context with others? Power with is what Mary Parker Fuller describes as a coactive power. With power over, you kind of have just this finite amount of power. With power with, we're constantly growing our capacity to get things done. So my power isn't shrinking because I'm sharing it. It's actually growing. Our collective capacity to get things done keeps expanding. Tanya also makes a distinction between cultivating power and collecting power. In the power over paradigm, leaders need to collect people with greater and greater capacity to get things done in order to grow the power of the organization. However, in the power with paradigm, the capacity to get things done can be cultivated both on the individual and the team levels. How do you take the people that are already around you and how do you build their power? Maybe that's helping them develop new skills. Um, maybe that's helping grow their understanding of information that they need to be able to make good decisions. Um, maybe it's about growing their influence. Like, are you connecting them to the right people and helping them understand other people's perspectives? Uh, or one of my favorites is how do you give them enough authority to be able to make decisions on their own, make mistakes on their own, grow those muscles that you yourself grew because you had the power to do so. Um, so yes, I think that we over focus on what is the capacity or capability of this person and under focus on how do we expand through the organization that we build, through the role that we build, the capacity of this person. The power with paradigm likely aligns with your values and the way you want to be of service in the world. But putting it into practice is a whole other thing. Most people haven't worked in environments that really embrace power with. We lack models and skills for putting it into place. Often, those who want to move toward the power with paradigm end up in a sort of middle ground. Abandoning hierarchy, for example, might feel impossible. But you still want to empower those around you to offer feedback and collaborate on projects. In the middle of the spectrum would be things like, um, I'm leading the meeting, I have the authority, and we do go around and I hear people's perspectives, I hear people's ideas, I do integrate them, but then I'm the final decision maker. That's better. Um, and in some cases, that makes sense, right? Maybe for small or relatively low stakes projects, that might be great. Uh, the only problem would be is if I'm the only one constantly doing it. I think it could be nice if sometimes you're the one that's leading the project, sometimes I'm the one that's leading the project, sometimes someone else is leading the project, and we all hear each other's perspectives, but then ultimately there's one decision maker. Okay, so what does real power sharing look like in a meeting? A model that I really love is a combination of proposal and consent. So proposal looks like, um, okay, team, we have a problem. Let's say, I don't know, we're, we're losing clients. Um, who has a proposal for what we should try so that we could address this problem? And ideally, we're getting clear, too, on like our goal is to have no more than one client leave a month. And right now, five clients a month are leaving. Who has, who has ideas? And here's where the exciting part happens. When you have a proposal approach, those ideas can come from anywhere. Yes, maybe you have someone who's responsible for client services, and it's great if those proposals come from that person, but sometimes even more creative or interesting ideas will come from people who are in like a totally different role or function. So someone puts together a proposal, and by, by put together a proposal, I just mean they, they pitch an idea, then everyone goes around and asks questions. Um, in real power with organizations, there's really balanced talk time. So if you think about that intense power over, there's one person talking. Intense power with, 
in deliberately, structurally, you're going around and you're talking in rounds. So you're saying, each person one at a time, what questions do you have? Now let's go around again. Each person one at a time, what advice or suggestions do you have? And then finally, we do a consent round. Consent is not consensus, but everyone has veto power. So they have the power to say, I stand against this proposal if they believe it's not safe to try. Safe to try is a really useful tool in the Power With toolkit because it's not, do I like it? It's, do I believe it will be harmful or dangerous for our organization? If someone says, I believe it's not safe to try, they have to explain their argument. And then the proposer has to come up with a way to mitigate the risk and share their proposal again. This can happen very, very quickly. There can be so many ideas that you try at the same time. Ideally, you're doing lots and lots of experiments like that. And you come back, you share your results, um, and you can see progress just take off so much more quickly. Because those proposals are coming from anywhere, you have way more creativity. Because there's consent, you have that incredibly thoughtful participation where people have the authority to decide, do I want to stand against this or not? And if they do consent to it, then they support it. And you have a lot of experimentation happening. So that way you're learning very quickly as an organization too. Mary Parker Follett's teaching about operating in this power with paradigm has been boiled down to three principles. Expect to need others, expect to be needed, and expect to be changed. These same principles are echoed in Adrian Murray Brown's book, Emergent Strategy. As part of a greater exploration of iterative interdependence, Brown notes four habits she's had to cultivate on her own journey. Be seen. Be wrong. Accept my inner multitudes. And ask for and receive the help I need. Brown writes that as a result of these habits, she feels much more woven into the world. And that's an integral part of the power with paradigm. Everyone involved gets to feel woven into the work. That doesn't mean, however, that power can't be delegated to certain people, nor does operating in a power with paradigm mean that every detail hinges on reaching a consensus among the group. I do not encourage that. It doesn't mean we all... (laughs) I mean, there are many cultures that make that work, right? I personally am like too impatient and get kind of (laughs) irritable. I tend to think of myself as a pretty calm positive person but if we all have to agree and like the last organization I led was 150 people you can't have 150 people agree that's just not going to happen and if it does happen it's kind of boring like the beauty of working with others is that creative friction right where you think one thing I think another thing um yes ideally we all can get behind the action that we're taking but there are more interesting ways to get there than all needing to agree with each other. What's more, the power with paradigm doesn't mean swapping control for chaos or clear structure for lawlessness. Second misconception is just that it's chaos and anarchy. And, you know, you give up control and then you give up everything. And, you know, you give up on your your vision, you give up on quality. That couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, 
sharing power requires a lot of structure, a lot of coordination. In some ways, it's it's more effortful than just being the only person making all the decisions because now you have to go, oh, yeah, what are our decision criteria? Or like, oh, yeah, what are people's you know scope of authority? Um, so there is structure rather than this kind of lawlessness. In addition to misconceptions, many of us have developed coping mechanisms from growing up in power over structures. And those coping mechanisms can make it quite difficult to shift to working in a power with paradigm. I kind of grew up through various, for various reasons, as, as a bit of a control freak. There was a lot of change early on in my life. You know, I, I moved from Ukraine to the US when I was young, and then we like kind of hopped around in terms of where we were living. And I learned to be very self-reliant. And I learned, as I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, a lot of business leaders are, you're like, the only person I can trust is myself. And I know how to get things done. I also like became pretty good at what I was doing. And so it felt painful to see someone step in and do a not as good job, if I can just humbly say that <laughs> about myself. So, so kind of category of difficulty one is being a little bit of a control freak. The quick teaser of the solution there is, sure, you can be a control freak, but are you okay with limiting how much you can achieve? If you want to make a bigger impact and you can't do it on your own, then guess what? That control freak strategy that works great if you want to get just a little bit done just doesn't work anymore. And so for me, my desire to make an impact was just so much bigger than my desire to have that sense of safety and, and control. Some of our coping mechanisms have more to do with wanting to protect others from the burdens of power. The second category of obstacle is not wanting to make anyone feel too stressed out or too burdened by power. You know, power, oftentimes we think about it as this shiny, beautiful thing, right? Like, I want power and I feel better when I have power. And that is true to a point. But 2020, for example, when I was still co-CEO of my last company, uh, power sucked. We had so much strain on our business, as I'm sure many people listening had, and so much uncertainty, so little cash. And sharing power meant sharing that information, sharing, you know, decision-making rights at a time when decisions were scary to make. And so a trap that I have definitely fallen into that I'm learning to get better and better at is making sure that I'm not limiting people's capacity to grow by taking on too much of the strain or the stress of responsibility myself. You know, I think a lot about like treating people like adults. That's something that if I can handle, others can handle. And if I take it on myself, I'm reducing their opportunity to grow that power. I also asked Tanya about how stereotypes, prejudice, privilege, and unconscious bias can impact the way that power is distributed. When we think about power in the workplace, oftentimes we're forgetting that the workplace exists within the world. <laughs> and the world uh, shapes our sense of power and our reality of power right from the very beginning. So uh, yes, you can give someone formal authority, but oftentimes the the identity or the background that's privileged within society will also have a massive, massive effect on whether someone has the capacity to get things done. So I'll give you a, an example with maybe gender dynamics in the workplace. One of the things that we often see is, uh, for example, women speaking less than men in meetings or being more likely to be interrupted than men in meetings. And so much of that has to do with socialized power. However, when you give those women power in the workplace, all of a sudden those dynamics reverse. So if you see a group of women who have more formal power in the workplace than men, 
they're the ones doing more talking and they're the ones that are more likely to interrupt folks. So first of all, super, super important to recognize that we're not all coming in at an equal place, right? There's the power that we have sort of inherited through the the cultures that we're in um, and the subcultures that we're in. What were we taught in our homes? How were we treated in our communities? And then recognizing that the structures that you put into place in your workplace will play a really important relationship with those power dynamics that people are socialized into. I'll also say that the power dynamics that you bring into the workplace might mean that if you give someone authority right away, so let's say a woman, person of color, you know, maybe your socioeconomic status, things like that will impact how comfortably do you grab hold of power. You know, you might be given authority, but then it takes you a while because of how you've been conditioned, because it feels more like a risk to to take hold of that um, and to say, yes, I will use this authority or you ask for my opinion and yes, I will share it. That can take longer for people who have grown up in an environment of powerlessness. And so really, it's so important to think about, again, that that interplay of the the power dynamics that people are bringing into the workplace and how do we use the structures that we're putting into place in the workplace to lift up folks that have been socialized to see themselves and and to, to have less power. If The Lathe of Heaven is a cautionary tale about the consequences of wielding extraordinary power, then The Dispossessed is Le Guin's ambiguous utopia about power sharing. In The Dispossessed, there are two neighboring worlds, a planet and its moon. The planet's geopolitics mimic our own. One major power is fiercely patriarchal and capitalist. The other is authoritarian and vaguely communist. Both operate in their own version of a power over paradigm. The moon, however, is populated by people who broke away from the planet's capitalist regime to found an anarchist syndicate. Private property, the nuclear family, and governing hierarchies have all been abolished. Le Guin labeled the dispossessed an ambiguous utopia because while the moon's society was closer to her ideal, it wasn't without its problems. Anarchist life isn't a free-for-all. What it lacks in law and hierarchy, it makes up for in norms and expectations. What it lacks in government, it makes up for in other forms of politicking. Le Guin seems less interested in endorsing a form of government and more in raising the idea of solidarity and mutual aid as values that can organize a society. In a blog post from November 2010, Le Guin discusses the differences between what she calls male solidarity and female solidarity. I'll adjust the language some and call these ideas patriarchal solidarity and feminist solidarity. Patriarchal solidarity is the kind that's forged on the battlefield, set against the other, and strengthened through rivalry and competition. It might not even be solidarity at all. Feminist solidarity, on the other hand, she says, might be better called fluidity, a stream or river rather than a structure. 
the modern era, feminist solidarity, she notes, is most often experienced in private life. And she worries aloud about some women's rise up the ranks of patriarchal institutions. Le Guin was a fierce feminist, even when her feminism was fraught with privilege and often whiteness. She ends that blog post with this. Quote, I think feminism continues and will continue to exist wherever women work in their own way with one another and with men, and wherever women and men go on questioning male definitions of value, refusing gender exclusivity, affirming interdependence, distrusting aggression, and seeking freedom always. Power sharing and its many benefits are incumbent on that questioning. You can't simply replace a power over process with a power with process. It has to be part of a larger project of questioning how we define value, gatekeep identities, understand our mutuality, resist aggression and violence, all in an effort to seek freedom and liberate the extraordinary power of the group. This truly is strange work. Some organizations already operate this way, of course, but many, many more will learn to share power as the future becomes the present. Our capacity to get things done, our power, depends on our fluidity and our dispossession of existing norms. It'll be strange at first, but with time, I think it'll work. Huge thanks to Tanya Luna for sharing her knowledge and experience in power with management for today's episode. You can find out more about her at tanyaluna.com. And to learn more about building teams using power sharing strategies, pick up her book, Lead Together, at your local independent bookseller, bookshop.org, or wherever you buy books. And that's a wrap on Strange New Work. I have really loved putting this series together and reading my favorite genre of fiction in a whole new way. If you missed any of the eight episodes in the series, you can find them in their own podcast feed. Just search Strange New Work wherever you listen to podcasts. Or find the essay versions of the whole series at whatworks.fyi. Next week, I'll be taking a quick break before returning with more criticism and analysis on the future of work. Live long and prosper. What Works is a reader and listener-supported media venture. Premium subscribers help make deep dive analysis about work, leadership, business, and economics sustainable. If you love What Works and you have the means, I'd love to have your support too. For just $7 per month, you'll get access to premium content and quarterly live workshops. Go to whatworks.fyi to learn more. That's whatworks.fyi. 
Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form on Substack. Go to whatworks.fyi to find this week's essay, plus a whole archive of in-depth reporting and analysis on the future of work. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutanaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell. 